Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 40, the one about the four P's of marketing, Twitter spaces, humour in talks, and an American werewolf in London. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. My co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much. And once again, an absolute pleasure to spend time with a man who is also on the mission to keep marketing simple. The voice of the marketing and finance podcast and the host of the Rockdoll video series, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you, Pascal. And here we are with episode number 40. I know I say this every week, but we're creeping closer <laughs> to having been do- doing this podcast for an entire year. Once we get to episode 50, well, 52 technically, I guess, but f- for me, episode 50 will be that milestone that we've done a year. And we've got a bit of a treat for everybody this week, haven't we? We have indeed, but we're not going to say much more. But yeah, it feels very special. I know it is, it's a modest milestone, the 4-0, but it feels great. And you're right, I think number 50 will be a year because, of course, we took two weeks off around Christmas. So as far yep. as I'm concerned, yes, we are working our way towards this major, major celebration. So having planted that teaser in everybody's mind about something special happening in this episode today, we'll not mention it again until we get to it. So let's go into the news. And we begin with YouTube, who's confirmed that TikTok competitor short will roll out to all creators in the US who will be able to access the short camera app and its full set of editing tools. Ad spend will grow by 15.2% this year to a total of $27 billion, with full market recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic happening in 2022, according to forecasts in the latest Advertising Association expenditure report. Now, according to the latest research from executive search firm Spencer Stewart, the average tenure for CMOs fell to 40 months in 2020, down from 41.1 months into 2019 and 42.5 months in 2018. Online grocery sales growth has slowed as UK shoppers return to supermarket stores following the easing of the UK's national lockdown. Figures from Nielsen IQ states that online grocery sales eased off by 25% after supercharged growth in the last 12 months. Now, US Telecom's business Verizon is selling media group Verizon Media, which includes both Yahoo and AOL, to a private equity firm. The deal with Apollo Global Management is worth $5 billion. Sports Direct has been deemed the worst place to buy outdoor and sporting equipment by which, and a survey of 10,000 shoppers, it reached an overall dissatisfaction score of 65%. Now, McDonald's has launched a TV campaign in the UK to pooch its McCafe coffee. The light-hearted campaign wants to establish the McCafe's 99p cup of coffee as the ideal balance of quality and price for customers emerging from lockdown. And Taco Bell chases the Taco Moon to famous UK landmarks. The campaign will use the moon as a billboard to give away tacos. Okay. Wow, lots to talk about this week, Pascal. I really don't actually know where to start. Uh, quick thing about uh, the shorts thing, the TikTok competitor from 
from YouTube. I was actually watching a guy, and I should have written his name now. It's completely forgotten me, but I'll put it in the show notes. This guy has grown to something like 4.5 million followers subscribers on youtube just by doing these shorts videos in a period of about five months now it's taken me nearly four years to get to just under a thousand subscribers so that is incredible growth for just putting up videos that are less than a minute long yeah it's fascinating you know this kind of micro content and micro consumption and i think it just suits an audience who wants to snack and go through content rapidly the the challenge of course from a business point of view is you've got to be careful that you have to mix it up right if you only do micro content people will not remember your key messages and your core values and business offerings so i think let's be careful that people don't read the headlines and think right that's it let's change everything let's change the strategy roger and let's just, just do shorts or TikTok-like, you know, kind of content. Absolutely right. And what do you think about this business of the average tenure for a chief marketing officer? I, falling to yeah, 40 I, months? I, yeah, I don't like what, what this is suggesting, which is two things. Is it that, you know, the leaders and decision makers are too impatient and after pretty much, you know, a 40-month period, they, f- they feel like they- there's a need for a change. Is it also linked to this idea, once again, of, you know, text, haps and hacks and tips? So once you have exhausted, you know, what's in your toolkit, you have to move on before you get found out that, you know, your strategy is perhaps too weak. I just don't like the this inference that, as a discipline, once again, marketers are kind of very, uh, what's the question I'm looking for, you know, not reliable individuals, that they won't stick around long enough. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that. Maybe I'll have to find the research because, again, are these people doing what you and I would term the entire marketing job? So are they talking about customer research, product development, pricing, and all of that sort of thing? Or are they purely just pulling all the tactical digital levers i think it'd be fascinating to find that out for me the one that uh, i couldn't help but react to was obviously the news about sports direct i mean Mm. you know we take no pleasure in reporting that news to the viewers and listeners today but when i read the bbc article this was a very damning report roger i mean the Mm. whole before Mm. doing and after customer experience scored very very low including the, what they did to adapt to COVID restrictions. Customers complaining yes. that they didn't feel safe going to the stores. The lowest score was around returns and after sales care. So we, we hope that they're going to rectify that. But the question I had for you today as well, Roger, was do you think that the, the mood and impression of the customers with regard to the quality of service is also linked to a, I would say, unfortunate personal brand when it comes to Mike Ashley, but also the backlash they had maybe one or two years ago with the zero-hour contracts? Yeah, it's maybe it's a combination of all of these things. I mean, to a certain extent, I always think there are certain brands where poor service is almost woven into mm. their offering. You know, I would think of Ryanair here. Now, obviously, Ryanair, incredibly successful, fly, or used to before COVID, fly hundreds of millions of people all over Europe for incredibly cheap prices and people are happy with that and because of the cheap prices and because of the route network they will put up with pretty diabolical service now personally (laughs) i will avoid flying ryanair 
if I can best avoid it. You know, I, I'm on record of saying that if I had an option of flying from Edinburgh to Paris direct or via New Zealand, if it was the airline direct was Ryanair and the New Zealand option was <laughs> British Airways, I'd go with British Airways and take a day to get to Paris rather than fly with Ryanair. And I've always thought that Sports Direct is is a similar sort of thing. You know, you offset the fact that their prices are ridiculously cheap and you will almost accept a, le- a poor level of service. But I think that they've probably overstepped the mark with some of the things they've been doing during the pandemic, I have to say. Yeah, that's a feeling. Now, I know that you are very partial to a coffee break. You are yeah. the coffee drinker amongst the two gigs and marketing podcasts. So uh, are you, I mean, do you, you consume the McCafe coffee? <laughs> never had one, Pascal. Probably ne- never will. Um, I'm not a massive fan of McDonald's at all, to be perfectly honest. I mean, if I ever do have fast food of that kind, it usually ends up being Burger King. Mm. Uh, but again, you know, as long as it tastes good, I think that's absolutely fine. I mean, you could also you can you can lay quite a lot of criticism at the door of Starbucks and Cafe Nero for charging nearly three pound for an American for Americano. After all, it's just water and coffee beans, isn't it? And as long as the uh, the Maca- the McCafe tastes good then yeah good idea you know there there will be a market for that i think and and clearly the timing is all linked to one of the news you read about the online grocery sales dropping um, because the uh, in-store sales are increasing so of course there is more people out and about you know in the uk certainly we make a good progress with vaccination whilst respecting all the different kind of uh, you know social distancing rules and so on so i think it's been interesting to observe particularly on tv roger as I'm waiting for either Richard Osman's House of Games or The Chase, <laughs> the adverts are very timely and they are putting a message out, which is in and around, right, we're just starting to go out again. So here's the, the offering. And I like, there's a lot of warmth and wit in the advertising at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the advert that McDonald's have put out to support this is very engaging, I have to say. I have to say that. Now, Taco Bell, um, have you actually seen the uh, one of their images where they're actually putting the taco moon into the images the one that i really like is they've got the london eye obviously gigantic big wheel and they've superimposed this beautiful sort of blue moon in proportion within the outline of the actual london eye it's an absolutely stunning image and by staggering coincidence ties in slightly to the film that we're going to discuss <laughs> later on in this podcast there's another teaser coming your way people who are watching and people who are listening but uh, great photography there no absolutely and and once again this kind of um, visual communication and marketing you know i think people sometimes spend a lot of time on copy and so they should but i think the visual stimuli and and bear in mind you know people consuming content on the small screen mobile phones all the way to tv and billboards i think what taco bell have done is really kind of multi-channel and i think uh, yeah. it's, it's a good one uh, once again i'm not a um, very fond of their products i, I will confess but um, good luck to them for sure yeah, I know some really interesting stuff going on this week, Pascal. Some great news. And as you say, there's, there's some really quite creative and visual stuff happening at the moment. So, you know, I'm really pleased that we're starting to see brands getting back into advertising again after maybe a little bit of a lean mm. period during the pandemic. Shall we move on to our next part of the show then? Shall we go to content spotlights? 
in this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table a piece of content that's caught our attention over the last week. Now, it could be an article, it could be a video, it could be a blog, or it could be a podcast. Uh, but it, it's something, you know, that highlights something good about marketing or something good about content. So, Pascal, what have you got in your spotlight this week? So this week, Roger, I've got an article that I received in my inbox. Normally, mm -hmm. I either find the articles and content for the spotlights using Flipboard or other means. But this was in my inbox. I was having, having a bit of a call, as you have to from time to time. And I'd received a newsletter from Agora Pulse. You know, Agora, the oh, yeah. Pulse, the um, social media management platform. And the title was just really, really good in terms of uh, wanting me to find out more. So this article is written by Anne Smarty. And Anne is the brand manager at Internet Marketing Ninjas, which you may have come across because they're quite active on LinkedIn as well. She's the founder of ViralContentB.com. And she's a features writer for the likes of New York Times, as well as Search Engine Land. So she's really, really uh, active in the content creation world. And she, she has written this article called How to Be More Creative when you feel anything but creative. Have you ever had that time, Roger, when you need to perhaps be more creative, but you don't feel like it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. It happens quite often, and I know especially that, when I haven't had any coffee. <laughs> yeah. And I know that you've been doing a lot of research for the marketing tech and apps as well to help the creativity. But for me, it's, it's a subject that um, is becoming more important because two things. It is um, really the differentiator when you think about, you know, standing out in a very noisy, busy marketplace. Indeed, one of the sentences that Anne Smarty wrote in the article is creativity is key to a successful campaign. In fact, I love social media marketing exactly for that very reason. Here, creativity can still win over big budgets. So that's yes. kind of the starting point. And the argument of the article from Anne is that if you believe that creativity is a skill, a talent, um, whatever term you want to use, you have to take care of it, uh, very much so. And the kind of um, tension is that often, when it comes to digital marketing, Roger, what we have to do can be very repetitive, they can be sometimes very lengthy, time-consuming micro-tasks that can get in the way of creativity. What she's saying, therefore, is allow time and have some techniques to forever fuel your energy. And I think there's also implicitly a link with what we've gone through for the past year. It's not been the best of circumstances to be creative sometimes stuck in the same location. And more importantly, a recommendation is, you know, keep, keep stay away from the computer where possible. So she gives six bits of advice for you to consider. Uh, the first one is to structure your day so that there is time to be creative. So she's talking about make sure you use your da daily to-do list. Maybe use this method of blocking your work into blocks of 90 minutes and have lots of breaks in between to be creative. But make sure to use daily planner, use journaling, whatever it needs. But your day has to be structured to allow for creativity. And all too often what we do is try and pile as much work as possible in the day. And you know, Roger, that research says that our days are getting longer working from home. So let's be careful about that. Number two, remove distractions. So that would be essentially the inbox, the um, you know, messenger, ping, whatever it might be. So she's recommending, rightly so, to use the tech to your advantage, mute notifications, change location where you work and so on, see what works for you and shut down and close all those tabs so there's no temptation to have a quick look on Twitter or on YouTube. But that's really quite important. 
But number three, distract yourself meaningfully. So to be creative, go for a walk and listen to an audiobook. Cook for others, which I know can be limited at this moment in time, certainly for the family whilst listening to a podcast. Maybe do some crafting activity and listen to a TED Talk. So what she's arguing is you could actually do something that on the surface would seem to be maybe a waste of time maybe doing a jigsaw puzzle. But if meaningfully you listen to a TED Talk, it could actually stimulate your creativity, which I thought was really important, and this reading and walking and so on. Number four, which I know would be something that you'll agree with, play with new tools, whether they are printed or digital. And for our viewers and listeners, if you go back to the last few episodes of Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast, Roger has found some amazing tools, new ones to play with to stimulate creativity. But what she's arguing is, if you always use your go-to platforms, you might find that eventually they're not as stimulating as they used to be. So try something very, very different. And on that, she's quoting Dr. Maria Montessori. She's saying that, you know, this quote of the hands are the instruments of one's intelligence. So using your hands and different tools, they're very important. Number five, draw inspiration from the art around you. And number one advice from Aunt Smarty, watch good films. So, Roger, <laughs> we are, are very happy with this advice, but she's also talking about shows, maybe things you don't read often, like poetry, books, uh, advertising on TV, and songs that you would not normally listen to to stimulate your imagination. And number six, you need to find inspiration from online conversation. And clearly, Agora Pulse and many others are there to help you with this kind of really heartfelt and informative conversations that your audience is having. So number one message, really, or the core message for, from this article, Roger, is creativity is important. If you believe that's the case, you have to take care of it. I just wonder, Pascal, whether you know we, we again digital marketing. This this phrase that uh, that we live under all the time now is obviously very data driven, and and that's fine, and it's very important, and you know we have to have data to so that we can measure our. Uh, campaigns, we can measure our performance, we can measure our sales, whatever it might be. But I do wonder sometimes whether we've become so obsessed with data and so obsessed with numbers that maybe this has either stifled our creativity a bit or whether it's actually um, distracted us from being creative. And, and again, the other thing, of course, that I've experienced in my own career is, especially when you work in big corporate, sometimes the, um, the, the whole institution of a big corporate can either deliberately or, un, or unknowingly stifle creativity. And that could just be the culture where somebody comes up with an idea, puts the hand up and says, I've just thought of this idea. And somebody will say, oh, that's ridiculous. Don't like that idea. Or, oh, not bad idea, but my only concern is, or we haven't got the budget. And eventually people just stop mm. being creative because they know that they're going to get pushed back. And I just do wonder whether there's an element of that creeping in because of our data focus. I think you're speaking the truth, frankly. Um, mm. Two elements, fine to be data-driven, but not at the expense of being ideas-driven, which actually is a quote from Bob Hoffman, who we mentioned a few weeks ago. And I think, therefore, it should be as well as so it's still allow the time for creativity because otherwise you're just mechanically going through the emotions. And I think you're right, the culture of, you know, always being right first time. So there's no chance to experiment and do yeah. things in a way that uh, at least you can learn from and build from. So again, I don't think Anne Smarty is saying anything new, but she's reminding us about things that we, we may have forgotten. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think the whole thing about stimulus for ideas is important as well. And, and thank you for reminding everybody about the, the apps that I've been talking about over the last few episodes. But, you know, whatever those things you are to do, I think we do need to have those stimulus stimulizations from different environments, as you said, different music, listen to different podcasts. You know, one of the things I tend to do is, uh, you know, how would I write this article in the style of John Cleese, for example, or how would I record this podcast in the style of uh, Muhammad Ali or or somebody different just to try and, and, and does that spark any ideas and to come up with something different so it's always worth just messing around with those stimulant stimulants to be honest now smashing now as roger has mentioned we don't know what you know we've chosen for this week so right roger your turn what have you got for us this week Okay, Pascal, I had a bit of a spat with somebody on Twitter recently. (laughs) Um, I do try not to have spats with people on Twitter, especially if it's about politics, but this was not about politics. It was about the four P's of marketing. Mm. Now, you know, some people might roll their eyes when the, when we mention the four P's of marketing, but they, they are academically proven and they are part of the marketing mix. And effectively, the four P's, which are product, price, place, and promotion, are effectively the four tactical levers that we as marketers have to get customers to buy what we sell and you know we've we've talked lots of times on this podcast about the fact that unfortunately these days marketing seems to be effectively all about the promotion element and we never hear people talking about the product or the price or the place all we seem to hear about is promotion and specifically digital promotion and and then of course on top of the four p's which is the tactical bit you've also got the strategic bit of doing research with customers doing segmentation and targeting and and brand work and and setting strategic goals. Now, this person on Twitter said something like, the four Ps are a complete irrelevance now. Um, Most marketers are just focusing on on, on promotion. So I waded into this and said, how can you not talk about the product or the price? Uh, Oh, somebody else does that, he said. And Again, it sort of goes back to what we we said earlier is that is it the fact that these CMOs don't hang around for more than about three years because the the job has become devalued and because it does focus entirely on the P of promotion and not the other. Now, this article that caught my attention as a result of that spat, uh, I have to hold my hands up and apologize It was written by Mark Ritson from uh, Marketing Week. You know, I bring Mark into the content spotlight quite frequently but he must be doing some good stuff because i keep i keep spotting this but the article says attempts to update the four p's are embarrassing they've endured for a reason and basically he's running through some of the themes that i've run through there the fact that we always seem to hear about these days is the promotional element but worse than that not only are some people trying to effectively brush them under the carpet and claim that they don't even exist or they're not relevant anymore some people are actually trying to redefine the four p's and come up with something completely different and he he gives an example and there's a there's this gentleman from a brand called me undies which sell underwear online which i thought was quite an interesting uh, idea for a, a brand and he's 
trying to argue that we should abandon the four P's and come up with a new set, which is purpose, performance, personalization, and pride. Now, Mark is not known to pull his punches and he, <laughs> he swears quite a lot in his article and, and uh, he describes this as complete bollocks, to be perfectly honest. And, and what he does is he says, try to look at Amazon, try to look at Apple, and then try to apply product, price, place, promotion to Apple and Google and that sort of thing. And it fits perfectly. You'll, you, you know what their product is, you know what their pricing is. But try then to do purpose, performance, personalization, and pride. And it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean, it may mean something to that person from that brand, but it is not really helping. And the reason that the four Ps work is because it's beautifully simple and absolutely relevant. Most people have a product, you might call it a service if you like, but you, you know, you have to have a price that you sell it for. You have to have somewhere where you sell it, the place. Some people call that distribution. And then you've got the promotion, which we all know and love. So so Mark takes us through these arguments. And again, at the end, you, 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 you really do realise that the four Ps are absolutely relevant, whether we're in a digital world or whether we're in an analogue world, they are still absolutely relevant. And the reality is that they should be levers that the marketing department are pulling in addition to the the uh, P of promotion. And just to end the thing on an absolutely glorious note, and I think that they, they really do think, they really do feel very strongly about this one, Pascal. They've even put together this four p's regeneration engine so you click on it at the bottom of the article and i'm going to do this live you won't be able to see it on the screen but it's if, if you imagine it looks like a slot machine a, a, a fruit machine in a in an in a, uh, arcade or a casino you know the one where you pull the lever and the and the things dial like that and then they set and if you get the right ones in the right line then it is actually um, you win some money so if you imagine a fruit machine and along the line at the moment we've got product price place and promotion so i'm actually going to pull the lever this instant now and see what happens it's spinning can you hear it yay I think I hit the jackpot with that one. And our new four Ps are Penny, Pizzazz, Precedence, and Purportedity. So what do you think? <laughs> oh, well, uh, listen, um, not just because Mark Ritson is always right, but he is always right. And what I mean by that is you cannot, you know, call yourself a marketer without understanding where your profession and industry is coming from. I know it is only human to want to always reinvent the wheel. It's only human to want something new. You know, I heard recently someone saying, oh, LinkedIn is nearly 20 years old. Maybe it's time to move on. You know, that, that kind of comments. <laughs> or maybe, you know, because, of course, it's almost, you know, this kind of mirroring of being a consumer, always looking for the, the new car, the new TV, the new this, the new app. And this almost embarrassment of, yeah, I'm using a technique that people older than me have used as well and wanted to be a bit different. I don't know. Uh, is it a PR stunt? 
so that's you know um, almost like at least they're talking about us even though we're being obviously criticized or is it something that they believed in but the likelihood is they're going to go full circle in a year two years time roger and use the traditional 4p and and almost have wasted a lot of time money and effort in trying to reinvent something that needs no reinvention because ultimately you're right it's simplicity it's it's power and then almost linking back to what I said a moment ago, you have the freedom to be truly creative. Right now, you're being challenged to understand what on earth those words mean, and then having to work doubly hard to make them fit into whatever you know you have to do moving forward. Yeah, and again, Mark says, you know, the, the four-piece is beautifully simple, I and mean, there are people out there who've extended it to mm. something like the, the seven-piece and the nine-piece and the 12 P's. but when you look at well, when people do that, They'll add things in like packaging, and, you th- and 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 as Mark says, packaging is part of the product. Don't make it complicated by splitting it out and making it something it it doesn't need to be. Um, and and I think that you know you know how much I like simplicity. Simplicity. This model is simple and it still works. Just try applying it now. Those of you who are listening and watching, try applying it to what you do, and I'm sure that it will absolutely fit it like a glove. No, I think for me, just to close on on that, you know, really, do not attempt to reinvent the wheel. Just use that spare energy and capacity in being more creative using the four Ps. That's what is required of you. Absolutely. Well, again, fabulous stuff in the spotlight this week. Thank you for our content creators who are continually putting out this amazing stuff for us to talk about. We are going to move on to a rather special edition now of the marketing tech and apps part of the show. Normally in this part of the show, Pascal and I discuss a piece of tech or an app that's caught our attention over the last week. But this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're both going to talk about the same thing. We're going to be talking about Twitter Spaces. Now, yesterday, both Pascal and I tried out Twitter Spaces together. And Twitter Spaces, I I think, is the Twitter version of Clubhouse. And Clubhouse, we've talked a lot about on the show in the past. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon which way you look at it, Pascal doesn't have an iPhone, so he's not been able to try Clubhouse out. So he's either missed out on an opportunity or he's been absolutely relieved to have avoided it. But now that an equivalent is available on Twitter, we thought we'd try it out. And we thought today that we would review our experience of Twitter spaces. So so Pascal, having missed out um, either positively or negatively on the clubhouse experience. What do you think of the idea before we actually get into the specifics? So I, you know, really been waiting for this for quite some time because Twitter has been promoting it and talking about it for a long time. First, they promised some form of audio micro podcasting, if I remember clearly. Then they changed their minds. Then they, they mentioned Twitter Spaces, but only for some of their top level users. So we had to be yeah. very, very patient. And then almost without any kind of much, much fanfare or announcement, it was rolled out. You told me about it. I wasn't hopeful because I am, as you mentioned, an Android phone user. But sure enough, there it was. And I very much look forward to our time together. And overall, overall, I find myself to really be quite excited to hear 
more than actually talk, if I may, that makes sense, to hear from some of my Twitter connections and followers for the first time in decades in the platform that is normally known for simple uh, text-based and, and visual-based micro-content. Yeah, now anybody who's listening, just to give you a quick uh, summary of what this actually is. So Clubhouse launched in America about a year ago, and it's basically you set up a room and people can go into that room to talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. Somebody has a microphone, they are a speaker, somebody's a moderator, and you can listen, you don't have to participate. So it, it's almost like a live podcast recording session. Now, obviously, Clubhouse is a brand new app, and I think I have about 200 followers on um, on Clubhouse. But of course, on Twitter, I've got about 9,000 followers. So I was absolutely delighted when this idea came from Twitter because I thought, well, it's going to be a lot better because I can engage with people who I know more than, than in the Clubhouse environment. And I do actually quite like what I've seen on Twitter so far. They have a, um, a captioning um, element to the Twitter spaces. So it literally puts captions up as you speak. And from what I can see, it's remarkably accurate. It understands my Northern English accent quite well. Didn't make that many mistakes. And of course, that's absolutely essential for people who are hard of hearing to be able to participate in something like this. So I think that's an extremely positive um, thing. Uh, I criticise clubhouse for being extremely american orientated with some of those really loud brash americans in there shouting about how to make seven figure businesses and building seven figure businesses without doing any work in a week and that sort of thing because twitter um, has been around for a lot longer and because our networks are potentially bigger I've, I've not seen or felt as much of that sort of stifling overbearing arrogance in there so I quite like that as well so yeah so far I, I, I'm I'm quite hopeful that this will work out quite well now what, what did you think of it when we actually got a few people in the room you said you enjoyed effectively just sitting back and listening it was quite participative wasn't it it was yes so the way we did the test for viewers and listeners you were the host and i was invited as a speaker so um you literally go on your twitter app so for now you can't use it yet on the desktop or laptop you click the plus symbol i think for you to be and then you have the additional option to create a space or spaces and then i don't know whether did you actually invite yeah, you did invite me didn't you yeah now how did you do that out of interest did you have to enter the first three letters of my name the way it works actually is that um you press a button with the people icon on it right and it comes up with a obviously a search bar but just below the search bar it must come up with people from your follower network who you've interacted with quite a lot because your name was already in the list quite close to the top so okay. i guess it i guess it must it must suggest people in the drop down list below the search mm. bar it must just suggest people that you've interacted with quite a lot so it was very easy to find you and click the button and and send the invite to you almost instantly so that was the step for you as the host i will say and i think it's because it is still a beta version i was waiting for something to happen and nothing was happening but i did see that you'd gone and open spaces at the top of my twitter app you know where normally you see the stories because yeah. your kind of avatar your photography in the circle had appeared and you had that kind of purple circle which is um, a different color because I think for stories it's blue. So when I tapped on that, then I entered 
the, the space and I was asked if I wanted to switch on my microphone, which I did, and then you and I started talking and then people tend to join. From what I can gather as the host, you can of course um, still mute my microphone and as well as uh, block people if they misbehave. As a speaker, I could also invite others. So I thought it was interesting whether there should be also some uh, rules where only the host can invite others, but that's by the by. I could then react um, when people were talking. There was not a lot of emojis, but I think it's, it's absolutely fine. But I could also share and announce that the space uh, had been open and was live by either direct um, tweet or tweeting to the network or copying and pasting the link to maybe share it on actually a different social network. So potentially, Roger, we could be live on Twitter spaces but announce it on Facebook and LinkedIn or via email yeah and I think it took a while for people to start coming in and and, and let's face it I think we we went into this just <laughs> wanting to play around with the technology we actually didn't expect to have anybody else come into the room uh, as we were there but first of all it was a few people who we know quite well popped in just to say hello but then actually there was a, f a number of people who we didn't know That's came right. in and Quite a bit of friendly banter. There was one particular gentleman who was extremely helpful, was showing us how to actually uh, paste actual tweets into the space so for example we were talking about films weren't we, we mm. were wondering whether we should run a poll um, and he said well actually if you did a tweet before you set the room up and ask people to pick from one or four films or whatever it might be you could then post that into the space and actually have people talk about it. So that was that was quite good. That that guy was extremely helpful. But in, interestingly enough, I can't remember how many people came into the room off and on during the hour we were messing about with it. But I actually picked up ten new followers just by doing that that room. So mm. presumably most of the people who came in must have followed me. Uh, so it, it's it's obviously a good way, albeit in still in beta form, of of actually growing your following and meeting new people. I felt to the point you made earlier, it was very relaxed. Mm. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, it, it felt more relaxed maybe than if you did a live session or if you had like a, a planned podcast. It just felt like here's the space, here's today's subject matter. We have maybe a host and two or three speakers talking you through, and then the audience can just listen in or, or participate. One thing that um, I noticed is today, so a day after the, the test, this particular um, event, the Twitter Spaces, was listed on Google as a such result. Ah, now we know Google and Twitter are our best mates, unlike Google and Facebook. They're still having a bit of a bit of a love of stiff. But the, the drawback, I would say, is that when you click on the link listed on Google, it goes nowhere. I think there's yes. an error message of sort. So one thing I'd be looking forward to in future, which I've expressed a few times, is I would love to have this kind of conversation, very relaxed conversation, but really, Roger, I would want to have at least a way to embed the replay version of that space or download the audio so I can repurpose it for my own content marketing efforts. Yeah, and, and that that is a criticism that's been leveled at Clubhouse that uh, once it's over, it's gone. Now, the Twitter is recorded because I think they've made a decision to record them and keep them just in case anybody misbehaves, breaks rules, and they need to keep the recording as evidence. But as far as I'm aware, there's no way that I can download that as a host. So you're absolutely right. It's still the same situation that once it's finished, it's effectively finished. Mm. But I, th I think it's got potential. I like the format. I think it's like anything. 
if you're going to use it to create content, you've got to have a strategy. I don't think there's any point in thinking, oh, I'll just hop on and do a Twitter space. You know, you almost like go live and sit around for 15 minutes waiting for people to come in and then decide what you're going to do. I think I've seen a few people from our um, network, like Macing, M- Making Shang is on there. She's doing a FOMO thing every week and uh, other people are, are doing regular shows, but they're saying, I'll be here Thursday one o'clock every week and the subject is x and i think that that's the minimum you need to do is to have a strategy like that and a schedule that you stick to so that people get to know what you're doing and for me which we shared you know yesterday my interest is about value to my existing audience i really have little interest to suddenly be followed or connecting with complete strangers in the hundreds and thousands which i know has been a bit of the clubhouse almost sales pitch by those uh, suddenly you know clubhouse consultant which i discovered yesterday i was approached you know those linkedin connections from complete strangers so this lady was a clubhouse consultant i said of course you are and so, <laughs> so I think for me, it's, you know, since people are already following you on Twitter and they enjoy consuming the content that you show via tweets as almost an add-on to that wonderful service you provide, then spaces. But you're right, yeah. there has to be a schedule. You have to kind of go through this. So for me, the two or three things that I have in mind to explore would be to do almost, you know, a version of a content spotlight, but in and around mm-hmm. things that I like on content. But also I'm invited often to participate in events. So mm-hmm. to have the events organizer to join me on Twitter spaces, talk about the overall event and how you can do that. And then to do some spotlights on my Twitter followers. So invite them to talk about their business, talk about you know what the value they bring to their community. And again, for me, they need to be short. So in my head, for some reason, we are in the realm of a 10-minute conversation with maybe a bit of participation from the audience afterwards. Yeah, I think, again, another criticism that's been leveled at Clubhouse is it's a time suck and that people go in there and end up spending hours. You know, again, yesterday, you and I just spent an hour in that Twitter space, but it didn't half go by fast. So I guess as well, unless you're very well disciplined in your use of them, Twitter spaces could also be a bit of a time suck. But we'd love to hear what you think of Twitter spaces. As far as I'm aware, it's available to everybody who's got a Twitter account now at with at least 600 followers so there will be some people who won't have access to it but the majority of people will have access to it so let us know in the comments or or ping us on on uh, twitter and let us know how are you using twitter spaces and uh, let's learn let's enjoy this new app together smashing so shall we move on now pascal let's fire up the delorean let's tweak the flux capacitor set the controls of the TARDIS and head back in time. It's time for This Week in History. And in 1940, Winston Churchill says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat in his first speech as Prime Minister to the British House of Commons. In 1969, bloody 10-day battle at Hamburger Hill began. Hamburger Hill was the scene of an intense and controversial battle during the Vietnam War. In 1971, the Daily Sketch, Britain's oldest tabloid newspaper, founded in 1909, closes its doors. Many of the Daily Sketch's features, such as the Peanuts cartoon strip, were transferred to the Daily Mail. 
1979, at the West Coast Computer Fair, Harvard MBA candidate Daniel Brinklin and programmer Robert Frankston gave the first demonstration of VisiCalc, the original spreadsheet software. In 1981, at the start of his weekly general audience, Pope John Paul II is shot and seriously wounded whilst passing through Rome's St. Peter's Squares in an open car. In 1986, the action blockbuster Top Gun was released in American theatres and it made Tom Cruise an international star. In 1994, Pop Fiction, directed by Quentin Tarantino and starring John Travolta, Yuma Thurman and Samuel L. Jackson, premieres at the Cannes Film Festival. And in 2004, the final episode of Frasier on NBC is watched by 33 million people who would hear Tossed Salads and Scrambled Eggs sang by Kelsey Grammer one last time. Well, Pascal, wow. we could be in danger here of doing film marketing before we get to film marketing if we start talking about Top Gun and Pulp Fiction. But I don't think we cannot talk about Top Gun and Pulp Fiction. Again, both are extremely uh, influential, famous, award-winning films. But Pulp Fiction, again, one of those uh, films where everything's in the wrong order. But mm. it was groundbreaking, groundbreaking film. It was. I mean, literally, the Canfield Festival went on overdrive. I remember watching the news where they were sat there in the sun in Cannes, and you had all the stars in Quentin Tarantino with French translators. And... They were going through interviews after interviews after interviews. People were just so excited about the movie Pulp Fiction because not only was he breaking rules, but he was also paying great homage to more traditional form of filmmaking from the black and white French directors all the way to Hollywood of the 50s. Yeah, and, and one of the things that always makes me laugh in that film is the scene right at the start <laughs> when John Travolta and Samuel Jackson are driving in the car and they're just having a banal conversation about things in Europe, aren't they? Yeah. And they're talking about a quarter pounder in France is a royale with cheese, <laughs> a royale with cheese. And li actually, funnily enough, literally about a week before I watched that film, I'd been to Paris um, with a group of friends and we'd had Royale with cheeses. So it was just glorious to see that. And everybody who, who'd who been on that trip just burst out laughing when they said that. And, and it, it just proves that sometimes everyday language that can really appeal to the masses really works in a film like that. I know that obviously Quentin Tarantino's made other films, but I don't think that the dialogue has been equaled since Pulp Fiction. No, absolutely not. And Top Gun, now we're, we're, we're still waiting, aren't we, for the Top Gun follow-up, which has been another of these delayed films because of the pandemic. That That's due this year, isn't it? But, I mean, again, Top Gun, iconic film, iconic uh, imagery, you know, the song, the Berlin song, Take My Breath Away, burned into everybody's memory. And uh, yeah, probably one of the uh, of those films that absolutely launched Tom's cruise literally off an aircraft carrier <laughs> into the air. It was just it's it's just one of those great films. We'll have to get round to doing that in film marketing at some point. Oh, for sure, including Pulp Fiction. But you're right in terms of Tom Cruise becoming an international star. That was the movie, an incredible uh, kind of movie made by Tony Scott. And if you get a chance to watch a special edition DVD and get the interview about how really bold he was about the vision for the film and asking permission to go where no other filmmakers had been before, that was really uh, groundbreaking. Talking of groundbreaking, uh, very quickly, Frasier, 
Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I mean, just for our viewers and listeners and for you, I can declare that this is my all-time favorite TV series. I mean, number oh, one, wow. ahead of all the others we may mention or will mention. I just absolutely adore the characters, um, the um, the writing, the fact that it ran for 11 seasons over 10 years. Yes. I have the DVD box set. It's quite monumental. It takes a lot of room on the shelf for 264 episodes. And a few years ago, Denise and I watched all of them over the course of Ooh. probably a year. But um, it's just it's just absolutely wonderful. They are talking of doing, obviously, a follow-up. But I must confess, Roger, I'm just nervous because you know, the, the characters will have aged quite considerably. Unfortunately, we lost the actor who played, obviously, the dad. Mm. And I just know, I just feel that it was of its time, leave it alone. Uh, and I must confess, potentially, I feel the same about Top Gun Maverick. I don't think mm-hmm. it's required. I think you're probably right. Sometimes it's too long. I mean, maybe if they did it a couple of years later, you think, yeah, you could probably get away with it. But, you know, all this time, mm. nearly 20 years... Is it really relevant, I think? A couple of things I was also going to mention there. The uh, 1969 battle at Hamburger Hill, didn't they make a film out of that which turned into Full Metal Jacket? They did, Is that the one? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's that's another good film. And then here's a really geeky thing. I was too young to remember the Daily Sketch newspaper. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, I was too young. But the reason I've included it in there is that Obviously, you know, I'm a massive fan of Doctor Who, and I grew up with Doctor Who, obviously still like Doctor Who, although I'm not as um, enamoured by the the current iteration of it. But in the early days of Doctor Who, before we had videotape recorders and before we could actually watch the old episodes, the only thing we had were the paperback books that had been written of the episodes. And for a long time, there was a quote from the Daily Sketch on the back of every single Doctor Who book that was printed. And the quote was something like, this is the children's own TV series which adults adore. And I always thought that was a lovely little quote to describe the TV programme. And of course, it came from the Daily Sketch. And even when I read the books and saw that, I didn't really know what the Daily Sketch is, but now I do. Mm. No, I never heard of it. It was way, way before my time, before I came to the UK. Uh, just very quickly, I do do miss, or certainly have great nostalgia of computer fairs of the 80s. Did you used to go to computer <laughs> fairs? Oh, I absolutely, yeah. Geek out city, geek out city. Messing around and pressing buttons and playing around with floppy disks loved it i mean literally in france <laughs> what people would do they would hire like a sports hall yeah and but they were like just normal people they were not professionals but they were just show, showing the computer that they bought or there were people swapping cassettes you know because that's how we used to have games or floppy disk and there would be demonstrations so on and memory could be failing me but i am pretty sure that i would have had a play with a late version of VisiCalc before we moved on to lotus one two three and then moved on to excel Absolutely. I remember VisiCalc. I remember being disappointed with Lotus 1, 2, 3, I have to say. How were you? <laughs> Pascal, I think it's time for us to put some of our creator friends into the spotlight. Shall we move on to creator shout-outs? 
in this part of the show, Pascal and I give a shout out to some of our creator friends. Now, sometimes those creator friends are within our immediate network. Sometimes they're a little bit further away. So, Pascal, who's in your line of sight this week? So this week, probably a long overdue shout out for Simon Clayton, the MD and founder of the Marketing Skills Academy. Now, Simon is also a book author, very much like you, Roger. He wrote the Marketing Master Plan, all about strategy and Mm -hmm. planning before you take any actions. But he's also the master creator of Marketing Tips LinkedIn Post. It's someone that inspires me every week, and every week it makes me feel bad about my own LinkedIn post because it's just so creative. And I spoke to him actually a while ago. He was a guest on the content marketing studio, and I did ask the question, why do you do those uh, such involved LinkedIn posts? Is it quite simply they don't believe in LinkedIn articles? And say, so, yeah, absolutely right. The performance of LinkedIn articles is such that I would prefer writing posts. But these are kind of mini articles every single time. And what someone is doing, it's almost like an example to follow as well as being an inspiration for marketing uh, taking actions and planning and thinking through he writes sometimes um, articles sometimes he'd do a video or sometimes he use what's called the carousel you've seen those before which yes. is almost like a little playbook that you can flick through looking at the visuals and, and the copy and so many other things and i just love the way he uses linkedin post in a way that is very engaging he almost in itself, I'm sure, we're getting himself ready for a second book with the wonderful value he's bringing and the advice. But every single time he puts something on LinkedIn, it's making you think before you take action. So Simon Clayton, once again, thanks for the inspiration and all the amazing work you do out there. That's really good, really good, Pascal. I've, I've come across quite a lot of those marketing tips, LinkedIn posts, so they're, they're really good. I can, I can support your uh, shout out there. <laughs> now, this week, um, no, actually over the last month or two, I've, I've started to have put together a few new talks for a couple of events that are coming up in a couple of months' time. And I've just started having a look at humour in presentations again. Now, one of the things that I've never, ever done as a speaker is try to tell jokes in presentation because I'm just not a joke teller. And I think you can floor fall flat on your face if you try to tell jokes within presentations but on occasion i've actually got away with telling some quite humorous stories and <laughs> you know a lot of people seem to laugh quite a lot when i told my john the wine man story at the upreneur summit a couple of years ago and and sometimes the humor that comes out of stories it's not jokes it's just observations about things that are funny in real life now this guy david nyhill has actually written a book called do you talk funny and it's all about how to inject humor of that sort into your presentation so not jokes per se but actually just observational humor about things that are going on around you now i'm not giving him a shout out for the book because that felt to me as if it should probably be more like a content spotlight but he's also got quite a few interesting videos on youtube where he either tells a story and shows you how he's injected a bit of humor into it or or there's a couple of videos as well of him him running a course on humor and, and, and it's just worth watching a few of these because if you are a speaker and you are like me you you you, you do want to have some humor in your presentations but you're not very good at actually telling jokes then 
he's a good person to listen to because he gives you that idea and maybe a bit of confidence as well to build upon the stories that you have that you can tell but just make them a little bit funnier by the way you by the way you talk and the way you put the 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 setup together i guess so david nyhill author of do you talk funny but check him out on youtube and check him out on uh, linkedin brilliant pascal (laughs) it's time we teased everybody earlier on and we've only got one section of the show left so the thing that the special thing that's going to happen today is going to have to happen in the next section shall we move on to film marketing Okay, Pascal, this week we are going to talk about an American werewolf in London. Now, earlier, uh, one of the news items was that Taco Moon campaign with the moon (laughs) actually grafted into the London Eye. So a lovely little, uh, little teaser there. But we actually did discuss this in that Twitter space yesterday because one of the conversations that we had in the Twitter space was which film shall we review within this part of the show now this is the 40th episode of the uh, podcast and therefore we've talked about 40 films so we actually specifically wanted to talk about a film today that's 40 years old and we came up with a list of films Uh, Excalibur was one um, Clash of the Titans was another American Werewolf in London got the popular vote within that Twitter space that we were in it did so there we are all the others including Raiders of the Lost Ark and and a few others will eventually be mentioned and covered in film marketing but American Werewolf in London I remember seeing the trailers and the teaser content on French TV at the time I was probably 12 or 13 had been petrified and I don't think I saw the movie till much much later using one of my friends a kind of a dodgy copy on a VHS cassette yeah I'm pretty sure I didn't go to the cinema to see this because I think I was probably too young and it did have a (laughs) Uh, X certificate in those days Um, but even even when I did finally see it on VHS it's actually quite a scary film it's I mean that transformation sequence where the the guy becomes the werewolf Mm. is I mean it was done you know there was no CGI in those days it was all done with with not even aniotromics I can't even say that word Uh, it was all done with effectively masks and um, fake skin and fake hair and and it was all practical effects by Rick Baker yeah Um, and really for him what an achievement which was recognized for the very first time at the Oscars when he won the Oscar for best you know obviously special effects yeah I mean the thing that to this day, and I and I watch this film quite regularly, is one of my favourite films. And we actually, my wife and I watched this quite recently, maybe only about three months mm. ago. It's such a good sequence that where he transforms into the werewolf. It, but it it's, it actually looks as if it hurts. Do you know? It's so convincing that his transformation. You think it, you know this is not an enjoyable experience this guy's going through here. It's just incredible. And we must remind everybody that in 1981, 40 years ago, the audiences, movie audiences, and then later on, obviously, video cassette audiences had never seen 
a transformation scene in the past no. there was almost like a crossfade effect or there was you no know, cutaways but also importantly usually whatever whatever attempt in the past in movies for transformation were done in the dark setting yes and john landis gave himself the challenge of so we say rick baker and his team the challenge of this will be done with full line this will be done in an apartment well lit and we're going to see everything so we everything. can't cheat yeah absolutely incredible <laughs> now pascal it's it's obviously a horror film um it's very gory there's a lot of blood in it and and the special effects uh, and the gore are tip top but it, it's almost that it, i mean it's a comedy as well isn't it you know some of it is incredibly dark humor but it is a funny film as well as being a horror film but i think that's where horror movies work better i think where this mm. is released but also mm. if you look at john landis and his work he's mm. really the master of comedy i mean i would say thanks to john the 80s have been a wonderful era yeah. you know from yeah. coming to america 1988 going back to three amigos a very special film from you Richard and I, you had tre Treading Places uh, back with Eddie Murphy. But of course, the reason why he was allowed finally to make The American Werewolf in London is because he really proved his worth as a director with the Bruce Brothers in 1980. Yeah, yeah. And this, this film has so many sequences that stick in your mind. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a dream within a dream sequence mm. earlier on early on in the film, which is is really quite frightening. And I mean, the first time I saw that was like, oh my goodness! Um, obviously, the transformation effect that we we said earlier on that that was remarkable as well. But then later in the film, when the werewolf goes on the rampage around Pic Piccadilly Circus, oh, that's you know, just got incredible! Buses crashing into cars and cars going off off the side of the road and people being bitten in half and stuff like that you know it, it's really it's really quite spectacular in its goriness isn't it i think you that and it feels like a complex movie to make that makes any sense mm. and of course it was made in winter just to be mean to your all your actors uh, the, the actors that plays obviously the, the character of um David Kessler, who is yes. the one that is transforming little by little into the werewolf through bad dreams and eventually full transformation, and has been haunted by the ghost of his friend Jack Goodman, who was the first victim in the Moors. But yes. you know, it was told. There's a scene when you watch the um, special DVD documentary where he was told to run around in the woods, pretty much naked. Yeah. And John Landis said, "You know, you look a bit tense and stiff." I said, "No, I'm just cold. <laughs> this is March in Wales, and you want me to run around in the woods naked." So I think it was a complex film. You mentioned the Piccadilly Circus sequence. This would have taken so much planning and so yeah. much, obviously, participation from extras and the police as well. That, uh, again, from a production point of view, John Landis really, really pushed uh, the boat out on this one. Yeah, and, and Jack Goodman, again, you said the first victim. One of the things that really, I mean, again, it's it's, it's gory, but he keeps coming back. You know, he's killed early on in the movie, but he keeps haunting uh, David Kessler to try to get him to um, kill himself before he turns into this werewolf and and of course the first time he comes back as a ghost I guess he's a fresh corpse isn't he he's, mm. he's got his skin's been pulled off his face you can see parts of his skull but he's bright red because of all the blood but every time after that that he comes back again and haunts David <laughs> Kessler. His body's decomposed a bit more until the final time he appears towards the end of the film. He's all green and sort of oozing with maggots and stuff. I mean, it's, it's absolutely 
gross, but they do it so well. And again, he's got he's got that tongue in cheek sort of American scamp uh, gl- glint in his eye, even when his his body's falling apart. That, that is good black humour. Very much so, and and bear in mind that at the time there was another movie that was trying to obviously attract audiences in and around the themes of Werewolf, which was The Howling. Yes, yes. Now, I can't actually recall much about The Howling. I've I've definitely read the book. I don't recall the film of The Howling, so I, I can't in my head remember either seeing it or if i did it obviously didn't compare very favorably to this it is it, the howling is is fine it's just a more straightforward story and yeah. there isn't a humor it's just obviously the victims and people being chased around by a werewolf who actually uh, stands on his hind legs so it's more of a bipedal werewolf and john landis insisted that this would be more a wolf you know using four legs wolf. um to add to the tension in terms of you know who's going to break through the box office um, John Landis actually wrote the original screenplay for American Werewolf in London in 1969. Can you imagine that? Wow. Whilst he was working, uh, helping out on Kelly's Heroes. Um, right. you know, and in between, so back to creativity, in between you know, being busy helping out, he was just jotting down some notes. And he promised Rick Baker that Rick would get the gig in doing the special effects. But of course, time goes by. Rick Baker doesn't hear much more. So he agrees to actually be the special fixed guy on the howling soon after as is always the case in life he gets a phone call from rick baker saying we're ready we need you to work on american werewolf in london so rick baker uh, remained as a consultant on the howling but one of his colleagues worked on the film and he could dedicate all his time and effort which was required you can imagine some of the um, most complex special effects took six hours to put on the poor actors gosh and Again, there are some very iconic UK actors in this mm, film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, you, I've never heard of um, David Norton and Griffin Dunn, who played the Americans, but from the UK's point of view, we have Jenny Agatha, who she was um, in Logan's Run. That's the other big role that she'd had. I mean, I am sure that at that point when this film came out, I had a massive crush on on Jenny Agatha. She ooh, was hadn't the, the, go-to, <laughs> the go-to uh, female uh, co-star, wasn't she? But also shout-outs for John Woodvine, who plays mm. the Doctor. I yep. mean, he's a character actor. He's been in loads of UK TV series, like the aforementioned Doctor Who. I think he was in Zed Cars and that sort of thing. Um, Brian Glover, mm. who's the bald guy in the pub, who tells the joke about um, throwing people out of the plane, which probably is a little bit uh, bordering on um, politically incorrect these days, but he very well done in, in the actual film. And again, massive character actor who's been in all sorts of things like EastEnders and, and, and Coronation Street and that and that sort of thing. So again, it's one of those films where you can spot people who went on to greater things. And of course, another thing is the, the soundtrack. You know, on, yes. I think John Landis must have said, go out there and find me any song that's got <laughs> the word moon in the title. <laughs> so Bad Moon Rising by Creedence Clearwater Revival, Blue Moon by Bobby Vinto, Moon Dance by Van Morrison, you know, and many others. 
And what is interesting is John Landis did actually ask Elmer Benstein to do the, the more of the uh, background music, which actually for the dream sequences or when the tension is building is yeah. really, really good and it's so memorable as well as, well as the, the songs. I mean, like you, I discovered for the first time in you know, a Credence Clearwater revival and became a fan ever since. But hey, 1981, Roger, it's the year of MTV. And John Landis knows his audience, and of course yeah. he's going to do things like this because it just brings a unique identity to the film, of course. Absolutely. I mean, it was a stroke of genius, the, the music. The soundtrack <laughs> was just incredible. So what about the marketing? What about the marketing? I mean, ah. the strap line. The strap line of the film was Beware the Moon. Yeah. Now, the, the, the marketing is mixed and mm. confused and there's a number of reasons for that number one the john landis up to that point track record is around comedy films the um, kentucky fried movie i don't know if you've ever seen that that one yeah. roger but it's actually very funny and very cleverly put together criticism of the society of the time national lampoods and animal house blues brothers and so on so when the movie was first released, and we'll talk in a moment about the different ways in which they teased the audience, but the announcement for the distributors was, you know, a movie from the director of National Lampoon's An Animal House. People were brilliant. Let's go and watch a comedy. And we're absolutely horrified, of course, <laughs> when they sat and watched American Werewolf because there is elements of comedy, but it is most and form first and foremost a horror film. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so I think they got it a bit wrong there. Although mm. the, the trailers were pretty good, weren't they? You get snippets of the monster, um, snippets of the the makeup and the transformation sequences. Not you know enough to make you want to see it, but not enough to ruin the surprise. Yeah, which is very clever. So they, they began with a, a 60 second teaser, which frankly must have been filmed really at the very start of the production, just to get where the appetite of distributors, or maybe sometime as is often the case, secure more finances as as you started the project. And what you get in the, in the space of 50 seconds is a scene taking place in the woods at night. You get a, a sense that's the case. The camera kind of shifts slowly to the ground where the full moon is reflecting on a puddle of, of water and then suddenly blood just takes over and mm. then at the right time you, you get a quick growl a quick kind of mass getting past the camera we imagine to be the werewolf and then the, the title american werewolf in london is a so almost like a um project or film that was uh, tease that was made before the film then you've got yeah. a 30-second teaser for, for TV, then the 90-second kind of trailer f uh, out there. But also what they did really, really well, uh, and they were working and playing to these this special effects, there were so many, certainly in, on French TV for me, there were so many reports about the amazing technical achievement. And so for me, I saw the scene in the underground as a bit of a mm -hmm. teaser trailer, and we saw bits of the transformation, which scared the bejesus out of me, uh, as we've said, mentioned before. And and of course, part of what they did there was to, again, play to the different parts and facets of the movie. I think that was one of the most scary parts of the film, was that guy being chased through the underground. I mean, the underground is, at that time, was totally deserted it was it was quite late at night now most people associate the underground with crowds and crowds and crowds of people but imagine 
that you're in an underground station on your own and all of a sudden a gigantic werewolf hops up onto the platform. Oh my goodness. And that guy just ran for his life up the escalator. Unfortunately, yeah. he didn't make it. That was that was a gripping scene, an absolutely gripping scene. It was just well, well put together. Um, so when it comes to, to the marketing, once the movie is released, they went onto what I, I was called at the time, this publicity junket. This was a British and American production, Roger. So of course, mm -hmm. they did tour the, a lot of Europe. Uh, including Germany, who is a big, big market for, for horror films. Yes. And a claim to fame, I think Rick Baker was asked to improvise a bit of a, a special makeup workshop for the journalists because they were just so in awe of this talent. Yeah. And this isn't really a marketing thing, but they had a bit of fun in the credits as well, didn't they, of the film? Um, you know, the bit about all yes. characters in the. Uh, it says something all characters and events in this film are fictitious. Any similarity to actual events or persons, living, dead, or undead, is purely coincidental. I just love that sort of thing. You may. No. Pro pro Perhaps nobody would have noticed that, but the fact that they made the effort to put that in the credits is just joyous. But what happened then, the fans talk about it 40 years later, <laughs> which yes. has been, been true. I mean, they, this year, there would be 40th anniversary screenings all around the world. Even with yep. the um, lockdown measures in America, for example, they are doing drive-in screenings of American Werewolf in London. I'm sure they'd be the same all over Europe and other countries where the, the movie has done really, really well. The other thing that um, reminded me about the closing credits, typical John Landis because of his background in doing comedy films, but there was also um, wishing the very best to Princess Diana and Prince Charles on their <laughs> wedding because that was the year. Now, people are a little kind of surprised about this, but there is an uncut version of the movie where the character um, of David Norton runs around, um, I think, London at some stage and calls Prince Charles a faggot. And <laughs> John Land is going to real trouble with that. So he said, no, 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 you know, we're big fans. It's just a character, not me. So just to reassure viewers in, in England, particular that John Landis was pro-British, he put that extra message at the end as well. Oh, that's lovely. That's <laughs> lovely. Wow. I mean, again, it's we, we really do pick some classic mm. films to talk about, and this one ticks so many diff different boxes. Dialogue, direction, obviously, makeup, special effects, physical effects, just absolutely incredible. It's always a joy to talk about these films, Pascal. I just get so excited reliving all mm. the memories that these films just generate. But we'll have to bring things to a close once again. So thank you everyone so much for watching the show. Thank you for listening to the show. We really do appreciate you taking the time to watch or listen. If you've got any comments or anything, leave them below the video or hit us up on Twitter, wherever you consume your podcasts. Get in touch with us and let us know what you think of the show. And of course, if there's any films that you'd like us to talk about. Pascal, thank you so much once again for being my companion on Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Until next time, get out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Music